Hi, and welcome to the audio commentary for the 1988 Australian feature, The Dreaming. I'm your host, Jarrett Garn, and joining me for this audio commentary is director Mario Andriacchio. Mario, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Before we dive too far into the commentary, I just want to discuss this opening aerial cinematography that follows uh, the opening title scroll. Now, this is a magnificent way to open the film. It really sets a scene, establishes a tone, and it, it, it's just terrific. But I do want to get from you what the intention was behind doing so. I've obviously got in my mind um, an interpretation of it, but I'd like to hear from you. But also, I'd like to know at what point was the decision made to open the film with this? Was that something that was present from a script level or was it something that kind of came about during filming or in post-production? At what point did you decide that okay this is a great way to open the movie oh it uh, it came later when we were actually preparing how do we do the opening um because there was sort of shots of uh, kangaroo island uh which uh within the script but uh and kangaroo island is the place where the not only does the story take place uh the screen story take place but also where the actual story took place as well because Kangaroo Island was a place where there were Aboriginal people there and American whalers would actually stop off on Kangaroo Island on their way back uh, to the US after having sort of slaughtered a whole lot of whales. Um, And uh, so the story is actually based in reality um, and the location is also based in reality as well. Um, So... When we, when we decided to do Kangaroo Island from the air, what I wanted to do was to get a sense of um, the spirits, the historical spirits, genetic spirits that are actually handed, handed on from generation to generation because we all know that um, we have uh, genetic memory and uh, evil can be handed down genetically from Uh, actions of the past I mean obviously it sort of gets diluted the more generations you go but um, uh, but the idea that uh, there were indigenous people around that uh, suffered tragically um, and we see that with a lot of modern uh, indigenous people that are carrying uh, and inheriting the trauma and so this whole story is based around the idea that um, uh, that white people also inherit trauma as well um or or indeed not only just trauma but the evil of what actually happened in the past so that gets handed down and uh, so the story's based around that and so to actually open the film with almost like a uh, loose spirits that are searching as to where where to actually land and uh circling this you know this island uh uh, a, a bit like the you know all the Muslims that go around and around the Muslim Kaaba, you know the big black stone. I mean the same you know same sort of thing. I mean there's this island uh, and the island does exist, uh, and it's where this takes place. But I wanted to get a sense of the spirits that are just running around around this island, and so the speed of it became really significant. Um, and uh, and I also wanted it to actually take us close to the actual land and sea. And so to do this, it meant that uh, I had to have a very good uh, helicopter uh, pilot. And uh, I found um, a guy who um, was an ex-Vietnam War helicopter pilot. 
uh, and uh, we went up in a helicopter and uh, uh, yeah, I, I said to him, so, so can you go really low to the earth and to the sea? He goes, yeah, sure. How, how low do you want to go? And uh, I said to him, um, well, how, how low can you go? And he said, well, um, you want me to touch the skids on the water? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I said, "Well, yeah, well, let's let uh, let's try that." So um, a, a lot of those shots of uh, the helicopter uh, going over the ocean, um, you know, the skids are actually skating on the on the water top. Um, it was it was so low. Um, you were actually present for the filming of that, or, or was that in a recce prior to? Prior yeah, to no, uh, the cameraman and uh, myself were in the helicopter as well. Uh, and uh, he was uh, he was a master uh, helicopter pilot. He, he he was just fantastic. And when I spoke to him about the idea of creating like um, loose flying spirits, um, he actually got the idea really well. And uh, uh, and so we basically circled the whole island, the whole of Kangaroo Island, and we just got shots, different different sorts of shots and different sort of runs from the earth to the sea and from the sea back to the earth and so on um and of course you know the very last shot which is the one leading up to the uh to the lighthouse um i i said to him so how how close can you get the camera to actually touch or get close to the wind vane without uh crashing the camera he said well we can get it pretty close and uh that uh, that that shot that we did, I think the wind vane was only about uh, what about thirty centimeters, twenty or thirty centimeters from the front lens of the camera as as we flew over it. So it was very 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 close. It is a terrific sequence, and in my mind, it really does set a tone for the film. And I think your intention behind the meaning of the the sort of floating spirits, of the island is is uh is definitely conveyed if not picked up upon the first time round, at least with subsequent viewings now these caves that feature in the film now the exteriors are obviously real but the interiors is that is that a sound stage or um the the shots that you see are the exterior shots are uh, by the island uh, are actually on the island um and and then we actually uh, built the interior um going going down the ramp and down into the cave and the actual sort of small cave itself that actually bursts open all of that's a set um yeah it was was really the only way to do it because in in those days cameras were actually quite big um and um you know trying to get cameras inside a cave and particularly when you've got a crew of about 30 or 40 people 50 people um, it sort of becomes a bit cumbersome, so all the, all of that became sort of stage design. I think the level of detail in the production design is astounding. It really is incredible. But another thing that benefits this film through this sequence and through many others uh, throughout the film is the lighting in this movie as well. It's um, it's very distinct. The use of shade and colour is incredible. Uh, through this sequence, into the hospital sequences, into the sequence within the um, the library, 
uh, and museum. It's just it's a, it's a constant sort of feature throughout. So was that something that you'd sort of had designed with the director of photography? Was that something you came to him with or was that something that he sort of brought to you saying, look, this is how I perceive the picture should look? Yeah, I was I was very much influenced by the uh, European uh, cinematographers, in particular uh, one called Vittorio Storaro. Um, he he did uh, he worked with Bertolucci. I mean, he did 1900. I think 1900. Um, he did uh, uh, Apocalypse Now. You know, he he's done a he's done a number of uh, uh, major films, but he was he he's a major European or Italian cinematographer and um and his theories about light and and about painting with light that cinematography is really painting with light it's 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 not just getting beautiful shots but it's actually getting um the necessary shots um and uh the use of light and the use of the the uh camera choreography combined with the actor's choreography and the dance that happens between the two is is something that uh, is very much Vittorio Storaro and uh, I, I was I was influenced a, a lot uh, by him in sort of designing the visualizations of this and uh, the DP David Foreman I mean he was he, he was very receptive to a lot of these ideas and you know, I've worked with him a number of times now, and uh, he, he's he's been terrific. Um, he's one of the few cinematographers that I've worked with that is very flexible in terms of seeing things from different points of view. And because this is sort of like a dance between spirits, um, you know, we wanted it to be like a dance between the camera and the actors. And see, that's that's why the editing. Uh, in this, you know, a lot of modern editing is uh, very much that uh, the directors don't seem to be able to create enough pace or the timing of the storytelling and so they rely on editing to actually uh, construct the pace. Whereas the the editing for this, whenever we made an edit, uh, we we wanted it to be actually well thought through as to why we're actually editing at that point and uh, so uh, you've got that dance happening then you know then you've got the very formally constructed editing where I think Suresh the editor ended up winning uh, uh, an AFI award uh, which is the predecessor to our actor awards uh, for this um, but yeah it, it is it such was, an assured edit and a restrained one as well mm. it really allows the time for the shots to you know linger on screen give them an opportunity to breathe so that the audience themselves can engage with them and uh, and that in turn benefits the suspense of the film as well so but yeah it's just such a strong edit and stress of course prior to this you guys had worked together i believe before on a short but he had I think he had done one feature prior to this, Rolf de Herr's Tale of a Tiger in 1984. And this very same year, he'd work on Rolf's incident, Raven's Gate, as well. But with regards to the film itself, at what point, or did you know when you were shooting that it was going to be sort of a direct-to-video venture here in Australia, or was there always aspiration at the time for it to be a theatrical film? Because in my mind, obviously, it looks like it should have been theatrical, given uh, the scope of the film and seeing it. 
uh, for you know this first time with this you know theatrical ratio scope of 185 to one. Um, we. Uh it was always intended to be theatrical, um, and uh, uh, that's that's why the aspect ratio on it's uh, one eight five because the standard, you know, the standard theatrical release was uh, uh, in in those days it was uh, one eight five, um, so it was a three four thirty five mil frame masked top and bottom, um, and so we shot three four, uh, we, we didn't shoot it uh, masked one eight five. We uh, shot at 3.4 because in those days, um, I think it was the days of VHS, uh, and uh, that uh, to actually sort of screen on television, uh, you either had to compromise uh, the 185 and uh, um, chop off the sides, or you shoot in a 3.4 aspect ratio so that when you do the transfer, you've got it in 3.4. So, um, but it was always. Uh, it was always intended to be theatrical. It's just that it came under a uh, lot of criticism about it uh, being so uh, sympathetic to uh, e you know the indigenous history and the indigenous communities. So, um, so uh, I, I remember talking to a you know to one distributor about it, and he said, "No, nah, people, people, people won't go to see." Um, a film about the tragedy of black people in uh, Australia. No, 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 no. Um, so this, uh, you know, this was, you know, before the time of what we have now, which is a, a, a much greater recognition. But you know, I was, I was, I was very heavily criticised for making this and um, uh, for equating uh, white white suffering and white dreaming with black suffering and black dreaming. Um, so, how did you first come to be involved with the dreaming? Hmm. Um, well, Craig, it's primarily Craig through Craig Laheef. Um, uh, we were all sort of based at the, at the, uh, film, uh, the old film corporation when it was over at Hendon. Um, and, uh, what we, uh, used to do is actually sort of see each other and visit each other in the corridors. And I think, uh, Craig's office was only about 20 metres away from where I was. Um, and um, uh, Craig, had, Craig had done, had just finished a film and, uh, and he was going on to do this one, but he was, he was pretty tired. Um, and I, I'd just finished uh, Captain Jono. And, um, and uh, he said, hey, Mario, you know, you know, would you want to direct this? I mean, I, I, I don't think I've got the mental space to do this. Um, and I said, well, yeah, okay, let, let me have a read of the script. And I read the script and I thought, oh, it's, it, it's incredible. Um, and so uh, I took on the challenge. And it was only because, you know, there was a group of us. I mean, there was Scott Hicks uh, a, a little bit further down the corridor. There was Craig, there was me, there was Rolf. Rolf to here was... Uh, uh, on, on the other side of the corridor, so we all used to sort of cross each other's paths and uh, often go out and drink and uh, contemplate how hard it is to be a filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you mention Rolf to her because he he did um, Incident at Raven's Gate around this time as well, which is an incredible film, and I think might have even been produced by Tony Ganane as well. He might have been an executive producer on that one. That's right, uh, he was, yeah. Um, and I think he went from Incident at Ravensgate to Dingo. Um, 
Yes, uh, with Colin Friels. That's right. And, yeah, yeah, terrific film. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was it was it was quite a quite a cauldron of of uh, ideas and uh, talent, and. Um, one of the one of the re- really unique things I think was that um, you had films being made around the country, but to have something like uh, a Captain Jono, a Shine, uh, uh, a Dreaming Incident at Ravensgate, um, uh, Napoleon, you know, you had all these really quirky films that were sort of coming out of this this one place, and and it sort of seemed like. Uh, the environment for a real sort of explosion of creative ideas and it and it seemed to be uh, counter to the uh, to the trend I mean it, you know there was a very distinct Australian trend and we seemed to be right out of it um, particularly <laughs> particularly when I made fair game I mean we, you know when I made fair game I mean that was that was so outrageous that uh, uh, that uh, you know, uh, a lot of senior industry people complain that it was even made. So, yeah. right, yeah, of course, of course. I mean, yeah, I could imagine it having been a controversial film at the time, but it's so hyper real that you just have to kind of take it with a grain of salt and not, not, um, not, you know, be a. F- well, I mean, I'm not telling people not to be offended, but ultimately just appreciate that it is you know a work of fiction it is so over the top that it has to be taken with a grain yeah of well we uh, tried to make it like a comic book uh, and in fact and, and, and in fact the pitching document that we used was uh, a comic book so uh, uh, and uh, I think you anyway. were successful in, in shaping uh, the villains in Fair Game I feel that they were larger than life they were definitely cartoony colourful uh, outback sort of ochre types that just yeah very very far removed from reality and and not too dissimilar to the baker brothers from russell mulcahy's razorback mm. that came three or four years prior to the dreaming i mean the baker brothers that were played by like david argue and chris haywood had that that very ochre over the top craze sort of uh feel about them and uh yeah and certainly very different from anyone you would encounter in real life but understandably, the subject matter of a fair game was was controversial at the time, and and if it would uh, be released today, I think it would be uh, ten times more controversial. I think the only way you could really play it is if it was played through a female gaze, in a similar fashion to like Promising Young Woman or Revenge. And I, I do recall actually, probably maybe a year to eighteen months ago, there was a prominent Aussie filmmaker trying to get a fair game uh, remake or reimagining happening but uh i don't think it got any legs because i haven't seen anything of it uh just yet but who knows may Mm. actually happen at some Mm. point but just in relation to south australia as a film industry in the mid to late 80s what do you think it was that sort of set it apart from the other states i know that obviously when you do watch a film that was uh, from south australia or melbourne or sydney from that era they're very easy to differentiate from one another um, but what is it you think in the approach of filmmakers that were coming out of South Australia at the time that really, uh, you know, sort of differentiated their output from other states within Australia? Was it was it you know the politics of the state? Was it you know the geography of being sort of far removed from from Melbourne and Sydney, or, or was it something psychological? What what was it? Um. I think it's I think it's 
more of a psychological thing rather than a location thing. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, the the fabulous locations, uh, but you know, uh, if you if you're a good cinematographer, I mean, uh, you can point a camera at at anything and make it look fantastic. Um, that's 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 part of the skill. Um, but it's but it's really more the actual thinking of uh, the time that I think was um, was very exciting. It was it was a real thing of anything is actually possible, um, and and we were just discovering the idea of uh, of uh, becoming uh, becoming international. Um, that what what we were trying to do was to make international films and. Uh, you see, often, often Adelaide seemed to suffer the thing of trying to be competitive and trying to be like uh, the Eastern Seaboard. Whereas, uh, you know, the group of us started to think, well, what, what about if we ignore the Eastern Seaboard altogether and uh, we just do a leap and go international and just make international films? Um, so, so, you know, so that's, that's, that's what sort of became... Uh, exciting is that as as different films were being made, I mean, you had uh, Rolf on the one hand, Scott on another, Craig on another, and me on another, and we were churning out these films one after another, uh, and you know, just just to see what each other was actually doing, and we were in the same space. I mean, we were just we had offices next to each other, uh, and. Uh, um, uh, you know, it's it, it, it's that sort of inspiration that uh, anything is uh, possible, but to do it, I mean, uh, you have to be brave enough and courageous enough to sort of uh, stick your neck out and go out and do it, and at the same time, uh, not not worry about the criticism because um, a lot of us received a, a lot of lot of criticism during those early days, um, but you know, it was well. So what? I mean, if uh, if we've got this opportunity, let's take it. That's it, yeah. Like you had mentioned, um, you know, the films that were coming out of, of South Australia in that sort of prior to Fair Game in that early 80s period, you had films like Storm Boy or Bluefin or things of that nature that were a bit more sort of, um, I guess, more Australian sort of orientated films, not, not films that maybe had as broader international appeal as films like Fair Game that really did trade on mm. you know um that sort of genre exploitation uh sort of element which is which is terrific and and you said you did come under some criticism as did your peers at the time was that was that through the media or and through the film critics reviews locally of these films uh, or was it sort of more what what where did that sort of stem from uh it it, it was more sort of colleagues and and uh, industry particularly from uh, the eastern seaboard i think right um that's 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 where a lot of the criticism came from i mean it's uh, uh and i think it's also the fact that um I'm, I'm, I'm just sort of contemplating now i'm just running through my head now the whole idea of um uh, institutionalized filmmaking um, and um, you know because we had a uh, film corporation here at that stage that was making films like uh, uh, Sunday Too Far Away and Storm Boy and Bluefin and, and 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 all of those and so it was a government basically a government agency that was like a government funded studio um, and then we uh, reacted against that and we 
there was almost like a little mini revolution between us. Um, you know, there was Craig and Scott and myself and Rolf. I mean, we uh, we all complained and objected to the film corporation actually being so dominant in making films. And uh, uh, so we actually lobbied really hard and basically reoriented the government to actually stop the film corporation from being a producer and actually producing films. Um, and so uh, that, that, that shift in being able to not have that government restriction um, basically, it was you know the uh, the old 10BA tax days, where you know if yes, actually, while you're talking about that, can you just tell us a little bit about the 10BA because there'll be international listeners that are probably that may have seen not quite Hollywood and got a bit of an understanding, but but if you just want to uh, tell us a little about that at the same time in context to this, well, see when there's when there's government funding. Um, Inevitably, there has to be a cultural agenda, um, and and so that actually restricts the variation and the diversity of the content that you're actually dealing with. Um, but uh, uh, what what happened was that uh, we went from a government-dominated industry to a tax incentive industry, where basically uh, what the government was trying to do is to get a whole lot of private equity or private investment into filmmaking um, and and try and relieve the government from the burden of actually having to finance all these films. And so there was this uh, tax tax system that was developed, which was called is Section 10, uh, Part B, uh, Section A. <laughs> NBA um, uh, of uh, the Tax Act, and basically what it was is that if an uh, if an investor put in, say a hundred dollars to make a film, uh, that that investor could get a tax write-off. In other words, they wouldn't have to pay tax on that hundred dollars. But even but even better uh, was that um, uh, in in claiming tax, uh, the hundred dollars. Would be regarded as 150, so you wouldn't have to pay tax on 150 dollars. So you you're basically given uh, 50 dollars free, and then when you when you got the 100 dollars back, you only needed to pay tax on 50 dollars, not 100 dollars. And the 10BA system was called the 150/50. So uh, you put in 100 dollars, but you can claim 150 as a write-off and then when you get the hundred dollars back you only pay tax on 50 percent of it <laughs> so it was it, it was a it was an incredible stimulus where a huge amount of cash came into the industry um, and as a result you had a lot of films that were being made like dreaming incident at ravensgate uh, um, you know rolf's films and uh, scott's films and so on uh, such that uh, there was a very large group of uh, colleagues that were um, concerned that we weren't um, that well first of all that a lot of films that were being made that were not culturally relevant whatever that means um, and um, and uh, that they needed to be you know the old classic thing that they needed to be 
Australian stories with Australian characters for uh, Australian audiences, and there needed to be a a cultural imperative behind the you know behind the films. They couldn't just be sort of commercial films, um, and. Uh, so you had a lot of objection to the 150-50 because that then became 120-20 um, and then that was stopped and then you had the establishment of the Australian Film Finance Corporation which was the government film bank essentially to actually control which which films actually get made. Um, and so it was, it was that one uh, that 10BA period um, sure there was a lot of schlock that was made but there was also the opportunity for um, highly creative people to just experiment um, and and uh, and to have this opportunity to make films which was uh, you, you know you wouldn't have that opportunity to do them otherwise um, and uh, so so you have a film like this uh, the dreaming which is uh, would have been very, very difficult to actually get government funding for, um, and uh, yet we were able to make it and have a you know a degree of creative control over it, and uh, take it take it to fruition and sort of be able to experiment with a lot of creative ideas along the way. Um, so that was that was the environment. So you combine that national environment, which is the ten BA environment. Uh, with the South Australian environment, which was this real um, uh, idea that um, you know we we can push the boundaries, that we are capable of pushing the boundaries, um, and and that we don't have the uh, limits that were actually uh, normally imposed on filmmaking. So it was, um, in many ways, it was quite a golden era. Yeah, it sounds like the perfect storm. Absolutely, mm. incredible, and. So going back to you were talking about um, the actual story of the film and that Craig was initially uh, involved not only as a producer but in terms of the story, but you came on board and had a hand in rewriting the script. Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, because those those are also the days when uh, directors uh, you know, could actually uh, ex- uh, expand on ideas within the script. Uh, I I really love the idea uh, of it being like an uh, inherited evil and uh, inherited trauma, um, and so uh, uh, the script had had been written. But uh, you know there were a lot of ideas in it that I wanted to sort of push even further. Um, and so you know we did a you know we did a lot of rewrite. I mean it was sort of like a, a sort of uh, a, a team of writers. I mean Stephanie was on there as well, and um, Craig Craig was involved with. I mean you know we we all tossed around ideas because it was it was the whole thing of um, uh, well where do the boundaries actually sit and how do we actually push these ideas such that we can make a and a. Uh, film or a movie that is actually going to stand apart so yeah there was a you know there was a lot of uh, rewriting and then um, uh, I think it was only about two weeks before filming uh, that uh, one of the executive producers came along and uh, uh, actually hadn't read the screenplay and had just read the screenplay and sat me down and said Mario Mario I've got to talk to you um, we've uh, you know we can't do this film 
And I just looked at him and I thought, well, uh, what do you mean we can't do the film? Oh, look, you know, this, you know, this is, uh, this is an incest film. It's, uh, you know, father and daughter and uh, father has raped a daughter. And I said, yeah, but that's, but that's the essence of the story. It's white whalers having, having uh, uh, raped and, and killed indigenous people and, uh, and it's the carryover of that relationship. Oh, no, 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 you, you can't show that, you can't show that, you can't do that. I said, well, I don't know how not to do it, I mean, because that's what the story's about. And he said, well, just uh, cut, just, just take those scenes out. I said, what do you mean take them out? I, I wouldn't know how to take them out. He said, oh, I'll show you how to take them out. And he grabbed the screenplay, he flipped to the pages and ripped out, I think, about 12 pages. <laughs> And uh, then said, here, film this. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's, that's, the, that, that's what I had to do. And, 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 and that's why a, a lot of the uh, psychology in it is more played as a as subtext. And so the idea of, uh, you know, the father and the daughter and the relationship between father and the daughter. But what's, what's underlying it is that the daughter was abused by the father when, you know, when she was a child. Um, and uh, and so we had that sort of uneasy relationship uh, between the two, the father having having felt guilty about what he had done, and uh, the uh, daughter having having sort of uh, suffered this uh, abuse, and she's got this very unsettled psychology that sort of sits there throughout the whole film whenever she speaks with her uh, father. Um, and definitely just just like that scene there where she's on the phone to him and he's delivering it just sort of just so dry that the mother's passed and the details of the funeral and and whatnot yeah it's interesting to hear that yeah the the sort of you know the background and the inflection that's on those particular you know characters that may not be you know um as clear in the films but it gives it even a little bit more background context mm. it's, it's fascinating <laughs> you did mention psychology you actually have a background in psychology is that correct uh, you trained as uh, a psychologist at a point in time clinical psychologist uh but then uh, you know but then i uh then i thought uh oh, i don't want to be with crazy people for the rest of my life so i joined the film industry <laughs> yeah. that's great <clears throat> was there anything you were able to apply from your study in that field to the discipline of filmmaking Oh, uh, very much, very much. And, uh, and, and in fact, I think that that's one of the big problems with the way film is taught is that you're taught how to, how to make films and movies rather than storytelling and how to, how to tell a story. Um, and uh, because in, in many ways, uh, uh, the cinematic storytelling um, is really an extension of the way that we've been telling stories for hundreds of years. Um, I, I actually did a research project when I was doing psychology because there's a very big area in psychology called motivational theory. And uh, rather than doing a project on schizophrenia or obsessive compulsive behavior, anything like that, I, I thought, oh, let me, you know, let me do it on the application of motivational theory to storytelling. And so I uh, uh, looked at uh, ancient Greek stories, ancient Roman tales, the Bible, the Bhagavad Gita, the Quran, Shakespeare, and modern cinema and television. And uh, to look at 
a uh, development of uh, storytelling and um, from a motivational theory perspective. And to my surprise, um, I, I, I couldn't find that there was actually a, a development. The form had changed, the medium had changed, but, um, but really the psychological essence of uh, storytelling is, is, is very characteristically human. Uh, and uh, and really gets into all the Freudian Jungian psychology of you know meta meta characters and archetypes and all of that. So that's 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 why if you if you look at uh, the dreaming or if you look at a kids film like uh, Napoleon, which is all animals, uh, you know they you know they're still fundamentally based around. Um, the psychology of storytelling rather than actual movies and it's and it's and it's when cinema gets gets to that level that I think that um, it becomes very powerful you know when you look at the most powerful movies um, it's it's because it's it's the story I mean a lot of people involved in filmmaking talk about story but they don't really understand it what they you know what they seem to be more focused around is uh, making it look like Lord of the Rings or making it look like The Godfather or making it look like Star Wars and uh, they're using movies to actually base their own movies on and they become very very skillful movie makers but not skillful storytellers uh, which to me is fundamentally different and uh, I Unfortunately, I think that that's one of the big problems with um, all the streaming services that we have now and everyone making movies for the uh, streamers because the streamers are actually killing the whole idea of storytelling um, and it's really just just to have really good production value, make it fast and zappy and uh, um, moody and make it, make it look like a movie. But... Um, uh, the whole idea of trying to create a great story um, we don't seem to be oriented in that direction with uh, the younger filmmakers um, and I hear see- what you're saying and I agree I think there is uh, a lot of talent out there that aren't really um, you know authoring their own you know um, vision or ideas they're, they're trying to emulate things that they've seen or grown up on uh, but, you know, I think at the same time, there's a lot of, you know, auteurs uh, out there uh, currently, you know, newly established auteurs or auteurs in the making. I mean, in, in terms of genre, uh, you've got Ari Aster, who did Hereditary and more recently Midsummer. He's got another film he's working on. You've got Jordan Peele, who again had done Get Out and um, uh, more recently Us, and he's got another film coming out in the next year and I feel like these filmmakers are very story driven very focused on the character drama aspect and I say character and not human because uh, it could be a robot or it could be an alien or it could be in, in the instance of Napoleon the film you director it could be a dog uh, so I feel like these films are being made I think that um, the means of distribution is quite different as well I think a lot of these um, story centric character driven sort of films are now made on leaner budgets uh, independently 
more so than studio. They tend to do the festival circuit, then they're required by streaming platforms. And more often than not, just dumped on the streaming platform with very little fanfare, which is which is a shame, and it's left to sort of let the audience to find them. Uh, they don't have slick marketing budgets to really you know, push the films to the audience. And I think that shift has been because there's been an uptick in quality with TV, you know, from uh, the writing to the casting to the production values. So subsequently, I think the demand for those story-centric, character-driven sort of uh, films is less for, a, you know, audience member to want to part with their hard dollars at the cinema to see it. They'd, they'd sooner watch like a limited series or a season on on TV or a streaming platform or, or discover one of the, you know, uh, smaller films on a streaming platform. And I think in order to get that hard-earned across the box office um, counter, it has to be something full of spectacle. It has to be big. It has to sound loud in order for, for folks to want to see it, you know. So I think, yeah, unfortunately it's disproportionate that the popcorn films are the ones that are getting all the... Um, the attention when it comes to sort of a theatrical experience but yeah uh, yeah well see there's a you know there's a place for uh, popcorn movies um but but when that's that's your only diet uh, just uh living you know living on popcorn will make you sick um and uh, uh and and see this is this is what i think's significant about uh the dreaming is that um uh it was it was trying to tell a story cinematically, uh, and it was trying to push the boundaries of cinema, but really, uh, at at the root of it was a story that um, um, was politically challenging, socially challenging, uh, based on archetypes, uh, ba- you know, the whole thing of the tyrannical father and. Um, uh, and and the innocent child. I mean, it, it sort of draws on all of uh, on all of that psychology, um, the whole thing of uh, inherited trauma and uh, uh, evil that sort of gets handed down. I mean, uh, a lot of these aspects of uh, of story actually you find in stories before cinema, uh, but it's uh, but it's finding those elements and constructing the story and really trying to push that story and then thinking about it as a as a movie um like the idea of spirits flying around and uh and we start from the point of view of saying well we need to get a real sense of being like a spirit a loose spirit that is you know is trying to find a home trying to trying to find where it belongs Oh, why don't we do it as a helicopter shot, um, and uh, and we and we fly around the actual location itself uh, where all of this took place, rather than wouldn't it you know wouldn't it look terrific if uh, we had a helicopter shot and uh, and we're able to you know and you start from the point of view of the photography and how how terrific the shots would look, and then try and apply them to a story. Um, that's that that seems to me always to be the wrong way around and unfortunately seems to be the way that a lot of films are made now it's true very true now you did mention obviously that you you weren't out to um you know copycat or 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 anyone else's work or whatnot with the particular picture but obviously you mentioned the cinematography taking influence from Bertolucci uh you know 1900 uh was there any other sort of influences you know touchstones for you when you were working on the script and even even when it came to 
the production of the film? Uh, yeah. Um, it was it it was it was really like a like a synthesis of uh, of a number of styles. I mean, there's a there's the American style and the uh, European style. Um, the American style is is, is um, a lot more fast paced, um, and uh, uh, but didn't didn't quite have the same sort of uh, choreography that um, you know that uh, uh, the Europeans have, um, and there's a sense um, uh, that European cinema used to have, which is that. There's, you know, there's a story, then there's a psychology that uh, uh, sits underneath the story, and then you try and draw the photography out of the uh, out of the psychology of the story rather than the story itself. And that's 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 a principle that you know that we use with this, which is sort of almost, um, in in some ways it was uh, American, but in another ways it's sort of uh, European in its uh, tradition, and so. F- for me, it became like a trying to combine those those two elements together. Um, I mean, it was it, it was also a time when we were drawing from you know, you know from so much. I mean, I remember seeing um, oh, what was it? Spielberg's? Well, you know, I think it's Spielberg's first feature. Oh yeah, the uh, Sugarland Express or the or uh, Sugarland? Yeah, no, Sugarland no, no, Express no. Uh, with Goldie Hawn. Uh, that's the one that's yeah, the one yeah um and 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 we were looking at uh uh what was it uh, the dp on that vilmus zygmunt um uh and uh we were looking at choreography in there and um there was um uh, a great sequence where uh you have these two cars on uh or these two police cars one's one's a hijacked police car and the other one is a normal police car and you're looking backwards and the and the car comes up behind the police car then it goes to the side and the camera goes to the side then the police car goes to the front and the camera uh, follows it to the front and then uh then it goes on the other side of the vehicle and then and then we see it retreat behind um, and basically, it was like a 360-degree shot on the inside of the vehicle, uh, combined with the choreography of these two cars, um, and the psychology of what was happening was just fantastic. Um, where these, you know, these two people were actually trying to communicate to each other um, through open windows and radio, and uh, and it was imaginative ideas like that related to choreography and then influenced also by i i met a filmmaker called peter peter watkins um uh uh he was a uh, documentary filmmaker and uh, uh and he and he made this documentary called the war game or war games uh which is banned in uh the uk um, and it was and it was basically taking uh, dramatized, but he he used all real actors, or sorry, he used all real people for actors, and he filmed it and he filmed it like a documentary. And it took the premise: what would happen if a nuclear bomb went off in uh, was dropped on the UK? How 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 ready is everybody for a uh, nuclear attack? This is during the Cold War era, and. Um, 
And some of the choreography in there, in that film, uh, were just fantastic, absolutely fantastic um, in, in terms of, of um, putting the audience in a, a space and carrying them through the space with with characters and almost observing the characters of what that they uh, interact in a spatial in a spatial environment without editing uh, because even though editing may may seem as if um, you know we don't notice it in fact every time we do an edit we actually have to make a psychological judge uh, judgment we have to judge are we are we changing locations and or are we changing time uh, uh, you know are we are we jumping ahead in time or back in time or or are we still in the same moment and those and those two decisions whenever you do an edit actually interrupt the psychological flow even though a lot of the edits may seem concealed um, uh, that um, you know, still to actually change change the image, um, uh, you know, can you know, can be disorienting. Um, and so, when you you know when you look at that idea of uh, choreographing the camera and choreographing the actors, I mean, some some films have done it recently with um, oh, what was. Uh, uh, Second World War film that was sort oh, of seemed uh, as if it's yes. uh, 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 seems uh, as if it's done in uh, done in one Sam shot. Sam Mendes, it's a Sam Mendes film, nineteen forty two. That's the one. That's, That's it, the one. Is yeah, nineteen forty two. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, oh, uh, hang on. Sorry, I think it's nineteen seventeen. <laughs> I might have. Is that it? That's yeah. Yeah, that's I think the I, one. I think I got the wrong uh, wall. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, both of us did. Um, uh, um, yeah, I, and so so you occasionally get get movies and, and filmmakers that are uh, courageous enough to not edit, but see because uh, because we have technology now where it's so easy to edit um, that um, you know. Uh, a lot of filmmakers produce material that they then throw into the edit room and throw in, uh, onto an editing machine and start cutting. Um, but you know, but there's never the question: Why am I cutting? Why you know? Why do I need to change shots from here to here? Um, and uh, the whole grammar of uh, the way that we tell stories, I, I think, has become very uh, watered down, such that when you do try and do something. Uh, that is uh, quite quite creative. Um, the actual effect is actually lost by the fact that uh, you know we've seen it so many times before, um, but it's been meaningless. Um, so you know, there's uh, there's a lot to say about sort of the whole grammar of film. I mean, it, who, who was it recently? Scorsese um, recently became quite uh, notoriously criticised for objecting to the way stories. And films are being inspired by the streamers. Um, that um, you know, the emphasis seems to be more on the content and just providing the content rather than actually sitting down and uh, really trying to be cinematic with the uh, construction of the uh, films. Yeah, I think what you're describing to me really sounds, uh, you know, like the difference between what constitutes a film and what makes a movie. You know, it feels that the the elements. Uh, come together 
to make a film you know they all work in unison the cinematography uh the scoring the sound design the editing uh come in a uniform fashion to to tell a story and, and never try and one up one another just try and complement each other if anything just be even a little understated mm. uh whereas you know a movie is all about spectacle it is it's all about taking you out of the movie more often than not to turn to the person next mm. to you and go, whoa, how incredible is that? Or, you know, snappy, instantly quotable dialogue. And uh, I think we've all got an appetite for both, uh, for sure. But, yeah, there is a really big difference between between those two. You know, a film really benefits from um, real artisans working in um, unity to create that, you know, unified vision uh, that, you know... Mm. that you watch the first time around and you're just so lost in it. And then maybe you come back to it at a point down the track and you can kind of, uh, analyze it a little more. You know, I remember when I first saw Darren Aronofsky's Requiem for a Dream, the first time I saw it, it was just shock and awe and mm. just like, wow. And just being completely lost in the film and then going to see it a week later at the, at the cinema again. And then actually just taking note mm. of just the really, uh, incredible visual style mm. and storytelling techniques, you know, that have been employed across the various disciplines to um, to to really push and drive that story. Uh, but in terms of the dreaming, how far along was that project? You know, it, was it already sort of crewed up and cast, or did you have uh, an ability to sort of um, work with the producers to um, have a say in in casting and crewing the film? Well, I, I, I'd used some of the crew on the previous film that I just finished, which was Captain Jono. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's all sort of like a, uh, we're in sort of like that, that uh, small space of uh, what was a Hendon Studios. So we sort of knew everyone uh, and uh, we sort of, uh, uh, we could see what was going on. I, from what I recall, um, it was very, very early pre-production uh, when Craig offered it to me, uh, you know, to do. Um, and uh, uh, but there's still, I think, you know, there was more casting. There, um, yes, some of the crew had uh, already been booked, like you know, the DP. Um, I I bought on the editor, Suresh. Um, he had cut a couple of Rolf's films uh, in Adelaide um, and so you know we sort of uh, everyone and, and see Suresh and I went to film school together and uh, we actually co-directed uh, together when I was at film school and yeah so it was sort of like um, everyone knew each other uh, and right, so right. And, and, and we sort of knew what was actually going on and sometimes would go and visit each other on set and and see see what each what each was doing so um it sounds incredibly sort of um collaborative and uh there was a lot of camaraderie in in the industry in adelaide at the time uh as opposed to other cities in australia where it was quite you know hyper competitive uh you know that that's it sounds like it was a really unique environment and community of filmmakers that were not only bucking the trend and creating sort of uh, challenging and you know uh, commercially internationally commercially viable films in the instance of say the dreaming and fair game um but also yeah just uh, it, it's uh, yeah i it's rare i hear of that sort of camaraderie in other states of australia in in the 80s and early 90s yeah i i i think it's because 
we had one common uh how would you say one one common enemy in uh, inverted commas um and uh, and 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 we were all sort of united against the film corporation at that stage <laughs> um uh, because uh uh, this is, as I said, this is the 10BA tax stage, um, and uh, the film corporation was going to exactly the same finance people that we were going to, and so we were uh, constantly confronted with the thing of, well, well, why should why why should we give you money when uh, we can give it to a government organisation and it's safer, right, uh, and right. so and, and and so we found ourselves competing. Um, against the film corporation and uh, indeed the film corporation at that stage you know they were making their own stuff and uh, they were basically saying that uh, we weren't talented I mean I think uh, Scott got kicked out of the film corporation I think he had a three picture deal and Scott Hicks got uh, kicked out I think after his first deal and then I, I had a big run in with them where they were trying to take on one of my films and then we had a falling out uh, and then uh, uh, Craig, Craig had a falling out with the film corporation, and you know we we, uh, we all had problems mm, uh, mm. Uh, because uh, because the film corporation wouldn't actually acknowledge local talent. Yeah, um, yeah. And 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 so we had sort of like this uh, common in inverted commas enemy, and that that had a really strong unifying uh, effect. And so as a as a result of that. Um, we all bonded very, very closely. I mean, we used to go and have lunches together talking about uh, how could we uh, change the orientation of the film corporation such that we're not competing against the film corporation. Um, and, uh, oh gosh, I mean, I was, I, I was invited to do second unit directing on, uh, what was this? Oh, Robbery Under Arms. Oh, the yeah, film yep. Corporation. yep. Yeah. With Sam Neill. Uh, yeah, 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 and yeah, uh, and 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 they had me on for about three, four weeks, and then after four weeks, they uh, took me off and said uh, that you know that I, uh, I I I wouldn't be able to direct second unit. Right. Um, and uh, uh, Scott uh, Scott Hicks was criticised very much by the, the then regime of the film corporation, and uh, some of them even said to me that they didn't consider Scott to be talented. Um, and so, um, you know, you, you had this sort of, uh, you know, that's that's a negative side. The plus side of it is that uh, it it uh, helped us all bond bond uh, together very much. So, you know, like like when Scott was doing Shine, um, uh, he was he was in need of a production designer, and I was shooting Napoleon at that stage, and I had. Uh, a production designer on that who was uh, very talented and he you know he just walked down the corridor and came to me and he said Mario would you mind if I use your production designer on uh, Shine because I'm short of a production designer can you can you help me out yeah yeah sure and so you know uh, the designer went from doing a little doggy film to a period piano film (laughs) yeah that's great (laughs) Amazing, um, amazing. I have heard some uh, horror stories of the period of, 
of um, filmmakers that had worked with the South Australian film industry uh, in terms of corporation, in terms of, I think it was Carl Schultz that once told me about his experience of having worked on Bluefin and basically being pulled off his own film and then uh, hiring Bruce Beresford to come in to shoot some family stuff to... Um, to liven mm. it up and turn it more into Stormboy, um, even yeah. though that the subject material, the actual book itself, let alone the screenplay, was all inherent, um, the darker sort of tone of Bluefin. But um, and yeah, and uh, that really, you know, really hurt him, uh, and 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 took a blow of, to his confidence. But of course, he came back and made a number of uh, huge films like Carefully May Hear You and and whatnot. And then, yeah, venturing over to the US. So Penny Cook, now working with Penny Cook, of course, she had just done Code of the Year before in 87 and she was known predominantly to Australian audiences for TV. I think prior to this, she had been um, a long, uh, had a long time role on Country Practice and she would later go and do GP, I think a year or two later, GP and uh, East Street and God, I think she even did Oh, God, I can't remember. Pulse. I know Pulse is one of the last ones she did. Uh, but what was it like working with Penny? Because Penny, as Kathy in this film, is just incredible. It really gave her an opportunity to play against type too. Uh, you know, she's so... Um, I wouldn't say... Not that she's not wholesome in this film, but she's just such a sort of... Uh, just a nice character in a lot of those shows. A little bit bitey and feisty at times. But in this, she's just she's just incredible. She's like, you know, this um, girl detective sort of putting it all together. So what was it sort of like working with her on the film? She was great. Um, uh, we, we spent a long time talking about subtext, uh, which is what you don't get in uh, television. Um, I mean, television soap is more sort of... Uh, um, character against character uh you know the, the sort of like this superficial confrontation um whereas characters that are fighting with themselves um is when you start to get into the the cinema space and um we we talked at length about that and what the whole uh meaning of subtext is when you're actually playing a, a scene because when you're playing a scene it's like looking at the top bricks of a pyramid um, but there's there's everything else that actually sits underneath it that is just as important and gives you the weight and the depth of uh, performance um, even uh, even though a lot of the audience might not know the specifics of the details like an audience doesn't r really know the backstory that had to be cut out um, that father abused daughter um, uh, if you if you if you look at the film and you see it through that lens you can see a lot of her uh, performance sits on that um, that you know here's here's a little girl that always wanted to be loved by her father uh, and and he and he took it he took advantage of that um, and uh, uh, and so you you see her retreat into that but then her her performance actually sits on top of a whole subtext and you can feel the subtext coming through even though you might not necessarily know what it is you can see hints of it coming through on the uh, performance and 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 she took to that like a duck to water she's uh, she's such a talented actress and um i'm i'm sort of uh 
would have liked to have seen her do more meaty roles like that and working with directors that would really be able to push her and take her into a space where um, where uh, uh, she wouldn't be before um, but uh, yeah she she uh, she understood it and took to it and you know found it found it a little bit confronting like uh, any any actor would because you're actually having to dig in t- uh, into yourself and start to find uh, elements of that fear uh, that abuse that sort of uh, the childhood perceptions um, tyrannical parents tyrannical fathers um, and you know the uh, fear around being raped and sexuality um, all of that's quite quite dynamic and, uh, and she understood it and the way that she then converted it into subtext and played the scenes with that lens it's just fantastic yeah it's an extraordinary performance it really is it's a great ensemble cast as well funnily enough you mentioned lord of the rings earlier uh you know with in terms of people trying to emulate that but um you've got john noble in the film as well who was um in the lord of the rings franchise as well that's right yeah well i i'd I'd used him in uh, a couple of short films that i've done for the film corporation uh yeah because um those 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 were the days when um uh the film corporation was also the agency that did all of the government films right Um, right you know this is uh this is when you're still on film and not on videotape Mm. um and so and so all the government films for all the government departments uh had to be channeled through the film corporation that was something that was uh don dunstan set up in the very early days and so us as us as filmmakers would have this range of uh, films that we could tender for. I mean, these are these are little short films, you know, 20 minutes long, um, that most of the time we actually converted into dramas um, and uh, made these documentaries as, as uh, dramas. And uh, I actually used John Noble in uh, uh, one of the one of the first um, one of the first uh, films I think that we shot on videotape. Um, right, right, right. Uh, yeah, and uh, he was he, he was uh, he was great, and um, and also he'd done quite a fair bit of theatre here as well. Yeah, uh, I, I had seen uh, he was a like an artistic um, director at uh, theatre company. Theater. State theatre, yeah, mm. state theatre. Yeah. But th- this was his first feature. You gave him his first feature role in this film too. Like uh, outside of the shorts that he had done, this is his first feature film role. Which mm. is incredible. Mm. Ahead of the Nostradamus kid that he'd do a couple of years later with um, Noah Taylor, was it? I think that was in the Nostradamus. That's kid. right. Yeah, yeah. No, no. He he was uh, he he was really good, and and it's and it's really interesting, sort of getting getting theatre actors and people who who have had theatre experience, um, because I've often been asked about why. How do you how do you work with theatre actors? Because they they're in that big space and they're always projecting and film is so intimate and uh said to uh, you know my my response is that it's quite easy um what you do is that you go and you stand right next to the actor and i literally mean very very close to the actor's face and you say now now uh, perform the dialogue to me and i'm only you know five centimeters away uh, away from your space and they uh, perform it, and they get it straight away. They say, "Oh, okay, so so I'm performing over five centimeters, not not fifty meters." 
So, um, and uh, I, I did that with John and, and, and he got it straight away. And same, same with Penny, when we're talking about sort of subtext, um, standing really close to her and saying, now bring out all, all, all that subtext to me. Uh, and I'm only five centimeters away because the camera, uh, a lot of filmmakers don't really appreciate how, how intimate a, a camera can be. Um, and uh, uh, that really, even though a camera may be 10 feet, uh, or five meters or, or so away from the actor, uh, that it really is like standing right next to the actor. Um, and uh, when you're able to convey that to the actor, the actor can generate material and project it straight down the camera lens and we and we as an audience get it straight between the eyes no it's great no it's terrific I, and i always find that stage actors are often make for the best kind of character actors and i know john nobles he's done so many character sort of roles that mm. um that you know he is he just sort of invests in that role and becomes that sort of character uh, oh yeah you know it, it's great you can't just go oh, that's a john noble film you know it's just it's always a character driven sort of role so in terms yeah. of working with the actors outside of john and penny sort of how much time did you have to sort of go over and rehearse with them and and go over the subtext of the script with them prior to to going into um, the shooting uh, i seem to recall we had a, a couple of weeks beforehand uh and and see i i don't tend to rehearse very much um uh it's more talking about the intent of what it is that we're trying to get from the scenes and um uh because you can you can rehearse and uh uh sometimes get fantastic performances but then when you try and recreate that again on set it becomes really difficult and and so it's trying to time the actual peaking of the performance so it's really getting to know the actors such that you uh, you know what it is that motivates them and you can detect when they're a performance or you're building their performance up to that peak moment when you've got the camera rolling um and and it's a time and see that's that's where the skillful performance directors come where uh it takes ages to set up a shot and uh a lot of actors can lose energy because they're sitting around waiting and lighting and dollies and camera and set dressing and so on. Um, and it's being with the actors and hand-holding them such, such that you create this space and the environment to be able to build their performance up to a point such that when you turn the camera on uh, that uh, they're reaching their uh, peak performance on about take two or take three. Um, and uh, then that's it uh, and so a lot of the rehearsal I would do actually on set rather than beforehand um, and because you're dealing with such such micro moments um, it's re it's really having the the overall picture of uh, the progression of the story that becomes important um, so that you know uh, when you play that scene where that scene sits in the whole scheme of things um so yeah interesting and and given obviously that you had done fair game and the dreaming sort of within succession of one another back in in the mid to late 80s obviously you go on to do um more sort of family and fantasy 
orientated films in the 90s and into the 2000s like napoleon and the real mccord did you how was it working with children and animals though like because you know here we've talked about how much time you don't really you know want too much time you want to get kind of that out of the performance out of the actor on camera but you kind of moved into the seemingly the most taboo uh you know performers <laughs> in cinema the ones everyone's warned yeah. against yeah yeah well well before the dreaming i actually did uh, captain jono yes uh, of course which yeah. was uh, was that so? It was a made-for-TV uh, movie you did in 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 between in '87. That's right. Yeah, it was it was uh, part of the bicentennial. Um, oh, okay, uh, right, right. And and there was a TV movie made uh, from each state, and uh, Captain Captain Jono was the ugly duckling. No one no one actually wanted to make it. Um, <laughs> and uh, so you know, so I so I put my hand up for it. Uh, and I said, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And in fact, I, I almost got sacked off of it because I changed it so much. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, but there, there, there I used, uh, you know, it's a story of a deaf boy. Um, and uh, so I, I wanted to use a real deaf boy, uh, not, 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 not a talented actor who played deaf uh and and i was criticized for that and then uh, then i wanted to ahead of your time like clearly because uh, now it would be quite the opposite exactly now if you're hiring someone that you know exactly exactly yeah uh and uh the actor joe joe petruzzi had had never acted in a movie before and uh you know, gave him his first role and i was criticized for having him and oh gosh sort of so uh uh but it was sort of a family-oriented movie um, that um, you know uh, uh, it was it was the ugly duckling, but it was the only one that actually ended up winning major international awards because um, uh, it because it ended up winning an international Emmy um, uh, for its you know uh, for its production. But going going from there to the dreaming, to me, you know, in, in terms of genre and style, and then from there to Napoleon and animal films, um, they they may seem like different sorts of films, but fundamentally, when you look at the psychology and the way that the psychology is handled in either a Captain John O or a Fair Game or a Dreaming or indeed even a Napoleon, uh, that it's actually using as its premise um, fundamental Jungian and Freudian psychology and its analysis of storytelling from the past 2,000 years. Um, and it's looking at archetypes and meta-characters and meta-story. Um, you know, uh, people, people often refer to uh, the hero's journey, uh, but the hero's journey is really like a, a Joseph Campbell version of Jungian theory which is based on Freud, which is based on uh, a whole other sort of pyramid of uh, analysis. And so once you, you know, once, once you start to understand that um, and you look at these films, you can actually see a uh, commonality between them, even though on a movie level um, they, they are such different genres and style, but on a psychological level they're, they're actually approaching it in almost exactly the same way. And on that note, 
uh, you know, even though the the principles are applied across genres, has there ever been a desire to want to go back and and make a you know more genre sort of film that's like a horror or thriller, like the Dreaming or Fair Game, or are you sort of you don't that's you left that sort of space and. Uh. Yeah, I, this is sort of the. It, it, I, I only I only approach the genre, uh, or from a genre point, when after I've found the interest in what it is that I uh, want to do. Um, like I, I, uh, I did a co-production with France uh, called Young Blades, which is the story of the Three Musketeers when they were teenagers and still at Musketeer School, um, and uh, that was sort of very much in the period um, uh, adventure sword fighting genre uh, and, and and so I, I really loved the idea uh, and then I started to explore the genre then I went on and did Paradise Found which is the big film I did with uh, Kiefer Sutherland and uh, Natasha Kinski um, and uh, that's sort of like a biopic genre and so I, I went in and uh, studied biopics and looked at what is it that works and doesn't work within biopics um and uh uh but if you look at the psychology of the storytelling um there's a you know there's a commonality between all of them um even though they may be different styles and different genre which is really the way that i uh, approach storytelling and why i think that a lot of um uh a lot of filmmakers aren't trained in storytelling because if if you are really trained in storytelling you should be able to do any genre yeah um, yeah yeah I, I i remember polanski once being asked what what type of films do you want to make and he said i want to be able to make any type of film mm. and he has uh, you know as similar has, to yourself yeah. you know had has a career where where he's done things like The Tenant and Rosemary's Baby, but he's also done things like The Pianist and and that as well mm. that are, you know, mm. night and day, night and day. Mm. Oh, that, that that fabulous comedy he made. Uh, the oh, which one? The Fearless, Fearless Vampire Killers? The Fearless Vampire Killers, yes. Terrific <laughs> movie. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah, he's, a, he's an incredibly gifted filmmaker. I mean, yeah. uh, one of the films he did sort of, uh, I guess back in either I think it was the late nineties, um, the Ninth Gate with Johnny Depp is just um, is a really cool and underrated film that he did, which was probably a little mm. bit more in touch with um, Repulsion and and mm. the Tenant and Rosemary's mm. Baby. But um, yeah, he, he's a gifted filmmaker, has a very unique vision. Mm. Um, but I was going to ask you about Tony, like Tony Ganane, because you actually you've worked with Tony Ganane, I think twice. You've worked obviously with him on the Dreaming, but you'd worked with him again later down the track. On um, on another picture of yours, uh, Sally Marshall's not an alien. Um, sort of, what's your, been your working relationship with Tony? And and I believe Tony too was a huge fan of Fair Game as well. Um, mm. I've heard. So, yeah, what was that sort of uh, you know sort of working with him on this picture, and then obviously as the years passed, reuniting and sort of working on something down the track. Mm. Uh, he was uh, he was good. I mean, he, he you know uh, his his main thing was um, uh, okay. These these are the elements of the the story uh, that uh, you know we need to hit 
this this is the market that we're going for and he would talk to you about that and then leave you to go and make the film um and uh as as long as he was confident that you that you knew the market and you knew and you knew what sort of film you were making and he was confident that you were going to deliver what you said that you were going to do um he'll he'll leave you alone he's um he was he, he was very good like that i mean he um he had very bold and outrageous ways of putting films together um but he also gave a lot of people their opportunities to make films um and uh uh yeah the the, uh, dreaming you know the dreaming was one of them i mean look you you never totally agree with everybody on the uh, production but you know but uh you know but as you know but as long as you've got that sort of idea that you're uh you're uh, sailing to the Antarctic. You're, you're not sailing to South America. Um, you, you know, you you know where you're going. Um, how how you get there? He sort of leaves it to you to actually construct. Um, but yeah, because that year alone, like I think Tony produced somewhere in the space of maybe six six or more films. Like he produced a Brian Trenchard Smith um, war mm. film, um, The Siege at Fireblaze Gloria. Um, obviously, we mentioned Rolf de Hur's, um incident, Raven's Gate. Um, mm. Just and so I was thinking, he couldn't be this omnipresent sort of person that's able to be on every one of the sets at the one time. There's only so much um, mm. he can sort of spread himself about. But that's that's that, yeah, that's interesting to hear. So he sort of, as long as he was happy with the trajectory, he was able to mm. sort of entrust you mm. to yeah. work and yeah. you know work independently of that and 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 in terms of post-production did he sort of um have much of a hand in coming in and helping or wanting to shape things on a uh, on that level no no he, he he basically left you left you to it um i mean it was mainly mainly craig and i uh working it through during you know during post-production and the editing and suresh and like like all filmmaking you know the most creative parts of filmmaking are also the most lonely um you know when you're you know when you're writing the script and getting it together and uh, the editing <laughs> uh, which are also the most creative uh, the, the rest of it becomes a lot of time and motion um but um yeah I, I i remember when i first met tony uh he landed in adelaide and uh went up to him shook hands g'day oh you can actually speak English," <laughs> he said. With a, you know, with a name, you know, with a name like with a name like yours, I was I was going to order a pizza. Yeah, <laughs> 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 uh, he was like he was yeah. literally a powerhouse producer throughout the late seventies and into the eighties. I mean, his his output as a producer is just astonishing. And yeah, there's a like I mentioned, there's a good portion of films. Um, that he's produced that have been remade in the in the last decade or so there was uh the patrick remake and um the turkey shoot remake and there's there's always there's always talk of yes another one of gadane's projects sort of um being sort of revived and you know him him being attached to it as well so but yeah it's always it's always good to see that he's out there um you know still trying to get all these films up at the film markets and and you know, having success doing it too, because yeah, he's he's still producing not only um, film and television, but yeah, he's um, yeah, certainly present in the industry. That's for sure. Uh, there's there's uh, there's some of us that don't know 
what it is to retire because uh, we're like big kids playing with expensive toys. And <laughs> so, you know, we just uh, like it too much uh, to actually stop doing it. And that, that's 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 the passion, mm. you know, and that's that's the passionate people that are there and they, they just want to keep creating. It's fantastic, mm. you know. Um, you know, there's still plenty of stories to be told. And, Absolutely. Uh, it's great that we still have great storytellers to tell mm. them and it's not just um, on a, you know, new bunch of filmmakers mm. you know we want to hear stories from all different voices now the film did have a little bit of financial woes uh i believe there was a pre-sale to a u.s distributor called goldfarb uh and i think to- two of tony's films got caught up in this pre-sale sort of dilemma where when the time came to pay they uh goldfarb backed out basically not being able to meet their ends of paying this and the initiation did you did you hear much about that and was that was that something that happened whilst the films were in production or was this something that had happened prior to prior to them going into production um i i only have just a very sketchy idea of it i I think craig you know this is where craig was really good um, and I think that's that's one of the reasons why he wanted me to direct it because it, you know he was partly involved in that whole financing side, uh, and uh, uh, and he sort of kept Craig kept me focused on just delivering creatively delivering uh, the film. Um, that's true. Yeah. That's the the right job of a producer, someone that can yeah. get the creative in the creative space and say, "Look, I'll look after the business." Yeah you look after the creation of the art. Mm. Mm. I actually did a little digging and found that uh, Howard Goldfarb, who was the head of Goldfarb, uh, was prosecuted Mm. for misappropriation of funds back in 1993. And uh, it was all tied to a film, funnily enough, from 1988. And that was a Canadian film, Revenge of the Radioactive Reporter, that he had on sold to MCA but hadn't declared, I think, the right amount of money the picture had sold for and then and failed to deliver the money in any case to the producers mm. of the film. Uh, but ultimately he was sentenced to, uh, I think, six years imprisonment. And I'm not entirely sure how many years of, of the six years, six years, four months, in fact, that he served. But um, I know it would have at least been two or three because I found an article from... Mm. 2000 and oh sorry 1995 variety so um so yeah he definitely did a bit of time there so in terms of that that timeline 1988 it sort of lines up with the fact that he had pulled financing uh from two of tony's films obviously being the dreaming and the initiation uh but with regards to the dreaming uh outside of film festivals do you know if the film received a theatrical release in many other territories I'm I'm not sure. Um, it sort of seemed as if there was um, it, it was tainted with the whole Goldfarb thing, and um, uh, and you know there you know there didn't seem to be the people pushing it uh, internationally. Um, so I, I'm I'm not quite sure. I I never really got down to uh, working out what actually happened because I was sort of. Uh, uh, right deep into liftoff and sky trackers, you know, with the ACTF, and then course. I went on to do Napoleon. I was trying to get Napoleon together, and you know, we're, you know, we're all sort of, uh, you know, treating it like a a, a good bottle of wine. That uh, okay, well, you know, we you know we've just enjoyed this huge bottle of wine. 
it, it's now gone. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, what's the next bottle we can drink? <laughs> so, uh, uh, it sort of was. Uh, uh, we had that opportunity to do film after film at, at that time, which is uh, which was just fantastic. I mean, for you know, for any filmmaker, oh, absolutely. Uh, it was it, it was it was really exciting. So, um, for, uh, for international audiences, you can uh, you probably don't know, but Australian audiences, any listeners from Australia that are listening to this commentary track. You can blame Mario for if you grew up throughout the '90s being haunted by the faceless doll EC from Liftoff. Um, Mario had a hand in directing <laughs> some of Liftoff, so you can you can attribute the um, therapy bill to Mario. Oh gosh, yeah. Well, it's a, it, it was really interesting that um, uh, you know we had this uh, sort of like research uh, weekend where uh, I I uh, we had puppeteers and animators and everybody coming together and. Uh, there was this doll, this faceless doll EC that came up and uh, uh, I, I noticed some kids talking to it and I asked them if, you know, for them to describe the expression that was on uh, the doll's face and they could quite, quite clearly describe it. Uh, and I thought, hell's bells, I mean, the imagination that uh, kids have. And I argued very strongly to uh, include that doll and... Um, or puppet, and uh, uh, there was so much resistance, so much resistance to it, and um, uh, and uh, finally got it through. I, I actually did some test sequences, um, and um, uh, then one time when I was working with it, with with some of the actor kids, um, you know, the doll sort of looked around, and you know, the puppeteer was just such a such a genius, and. Uh, uh, and then one of the kids pokes up and says, "Hey, Easy just smiled at me." <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it, that. You know, that was that was really interesting. It was um, uh, I, I I I really loved that the idea that uh, we, we you know we uh, we as adults can lose that imaginative projection that uh, kids kids have yeah it's incredible yeah, incredible perspective to hearing that because i was a i think i was a teenager when it was on but i remember catching bits of it and thinking god it's really creepy you know kids programming was getting stranger like mully grubs with the transparent sort of face that only had like the eyes and the mouth and even then obviously toward the end of the 90s the teletubbies you know internationally at least so yeah tell t- you know it seemed like children's tv was much simpler when i was young you had aggro you know um and maybe boris you know a knight but that's as far fetched and strange as it got but maria look we've reached the end of the film uh and it was incredible talking to you and hearing so many insights into the film uh you know the production of the film but also you know into the story and the script of the film too for the things that we didn't know that now we can go back and rewatch the movie and have that added sort of context of of you know penny's background as a character as well uh, so thank you so much, Murray. I really appreciate it. I'm sure mm. the listeners are overjoyed to hear all of these insights. Fantastic. Well, thank you.